This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca I think probably one of the most serious issues facing the Jewish community today and one that's on the forefront of the agenda of every organized Jewish community is the question of Jewish continuity. We know that around 1960 there were approximately 18 million Jews in the world. In 1980 that number went down to about 15 million Jews. And over the past few years Jewish communities have become aware that at a very alarming rate we are losing significant numbers of Jewish people. Intermarriage rates in the United States are now up to about 52%. And one of the most alarming statistics came out several years ago in a population study that was done out of New York City that estimated over 500,000 Jewish people born of Jewish parents are now practicing some form of Christianity. So clearly, within the Jewish community, this defection of Jews to Christianity has been recognized now as a serious problem, especially with the very public and very startling tactics that are used by Christian missionaries, often ones that are very offensive to the Jewish community. So what, we have, what we're going to try and do tonight, I'll give you the outline before we start, is a number of things. We want to look at, first of all, who actually are the missionaries. When we speak about Christian missionaries, who are we speaking about? Is every person who considers himself a Christian a missionary? Does every person who calls himself a Christian want to convert Jews? Do all Christians believe the same things? There's about two billion Christians in the world. So we have to find out tonight, we have to learn who exactly are the people that are trying to convert Jews. Secondly, we want to understand what drives these people to try and convert Jews. Why are they so obsessed with converting Jewish people? Thirdly, we want to look at some of the history. What techniques have they used in the past? How have they tried in the past to convert Jews? How successful were those techniques? Have they developed new techniques that are being used now that are more successful? So we want to examine the, the, the methodology that's used by Christian missionaries today to convert Jewish people. And then we want to look at how extensive this problem is. Is it a small problem? How big is it? Is it growing? How fast is it accelerating? Where is the problem growing? Where is it stronger? Where are the problem areas? And finally, we want to look at why we as a community are vulnerable. Why is it that Jewish people are vulnerable to the efforts of these Christian missionaries? So that's the outline for tonight, and uh, I hope that we'll be able to accomplish all of it. First question, who are the missionaries? Right, when we speak about people that are trying to missionize the Jews... Is it every single person, is it ev on the agenda of every person that considers himself a Christian? So clearly we appreciate the fact, as Jews, that the Christian world is not monolithic. As Jews, we appreciate the fact that we are a pluralistic Jewish community. 
We have different flavors in the Jewish world, right? We have Orthodox Jews, Conservative Jews, Reformed Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, Secular Jews. We don't all believe exactly the same things. And we obviously don't expect the same from the Christian world. We know, if you ever open up a phone book, for example, there are not four Christian denominations. There are thousands of Christian denominations. It's a very complex world. It's a very, very multifaceted world. It's a world with tremendous diversity. We're going to have to oversimplify tonight. We don't have the time to go into a comprehensive overview of the Christian world. But for our purposes, we're going to look at some of the major divisions within Christianity and try to understand where the missionary threat comes from. One of the major segments of the Christian world, obviously, is the Catholic Church. Now, throughout history, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, really was at the forefront of much of the efforts to convert Jewish people. However, over the past number of decades, the Catholic Church has really disengaged itself from the entire process of trying to convert Jews. So we really don't face a threat at this point in any organized fashion from the Catholic Church. That leaves, essentially, the wide world of the Protestant groupings. Now, within the Protestant world, we have a much more pluralistic, much more diverse world in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, by its very nature, is monolithic. It's all underneath the Pope in Rome. But the Protestant world is really a world that has many, many hundreds of denominations. There are Baptists, there are Episcopalians, there are Presbyterians. There are hundreds of different flavors, and many, many people in the Protestant world consider themselves non-denominational. They're simply Christians. And then we have many of the new Christian sects, like the Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. We'll speak about them as well. And within the Protestant world, what we're going to do tonight is assume, for argument's sake, there are essentially two camps. One camp within the Protestant world, one grouping of Protestants, are those who tend to be of the more liberal persuasion. These are Protestants that, to a great extent, have become secularized in many ways. These are Protestants that do not believe that the Bible is the revealed word of God. They don't take the Bible literally. They don't necessarily take their faith as strongly as other Christians. They may go to church occasionally. They may entertain many non-Christian beliefs. They may question many traditional Christian beliefs. But they do have a strong tradition of being part of the Christian world. But in, in reality, a large part of the Christian world has become liberalized. And it's the more liberal segment of the Christian world that really is completely not interested in converting Jews. As a Jewish community, we've had problems with the liberal segments of the Protestant world politically. They have tended to be less friendly to Israel than we would have hoped. They tend to be very critical of the state of Israel. So moving from the more liberal camp in the Protestant world, we're going to look at the flip side of the liberal camp, which is essentially the conservative camp within the Protestant world. And these are Protestants that refer to themselves as evangelical Christians. Often they're called born-again Christians. Sometimes they're called fundamentalist Christians. But these are Christians that essentially take the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, literally, and take the Bible very seriously, and very seriously actualize all of the teachings 
on a day-to-day basis from the Bible. They take the ideas of heaven and hell very seriously. They go to church regularly. They read the Bible daily. They pray daily. These are very fervent Christians. Their political opinions, their political orientation is often very conservative, very right-wing. They tend to have very traditional values in terms of moral issues on homosexuality, on abortion. And it's this grouping within the Protestant world, the conservative, born-again, evangelical Protestant groupings, who are behind virtually all of the efforts today to convert Jewish people to Christianity. You must understand that this grouping within the Christian world is now the dominant group. It's becoming clearly the dominant group. Years ago, the sort of born-again Christian was maligned as some kind of backward person. There were stereotypes, the Elmer Gantry kind of movies. They were laughed at. They were really not taken seriously. But over the past 20 and 30 years, it's the liberal Christian church that has been falling apart. Uh, The liberal Christian churches have been losing members regularly. It's the more conservative, fundamentalist Christian churches that have been growing dramatically and eclipsing their more liberal counterparts. According to most of the studies that have been done, most of the population studies, most of the demographers, there are approximately 50 to 70 million born-again Christians in North America. And that's a conservative estimate. About 50 to 70 million born-again evangelical Christians in North America. And this is the group, this is the the segment of the Christian world that we'll be analyzing tonight. So for the rest of the course, when I use the word Christian, I'm speaking about this segment of the Protestant world. And you should also realize that to a great extent, many of the modern Christian sects also have as part of their agenda the conversion of the Jewish people. So I mentioned before groups like the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, these groups and many, many others also align themselves with the traditional Protestant groups like the Baptists, etc., who very much are in the forefront of the efforts to convert Jewish people. And I hope tonight we'll get a better understanding of what motivates these people and how they've organized themselves to convert the Jewish people. On to the topic of motivation. Why are born-again Christians so completely obsessed with converting the Jewish people? You need to understand that, in reality, their obsession goes way beyond the Jewish people, and born-again Christians have as the, probably the most important item on their agenda the conversion of the entire world, not just Jews. And their efforts to convert the entire world are quite astounding. They pump billions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours and have manpower to spread their gospel all over the world to the unchurched countries, to the far reaches of Africa, South America, to the Islamic countries in the Middle East, to China, All over the world, Christian missionaries and Christians have been working diligently spreading the gospel, spreading their beliefs. You should understand, by the way, that the born-again evangelical Christians who will be dealing with in this course also target 
Catholics and liberal Protestants who they believe are also not really part of the true church. So the group that we're looking at, the born-again fundamentalist Protestant Christians, basically see the world, the entire world, as composed of two kinds of people, those who were saved and those who were lost. The heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, is summed up in a verse from the gospel in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, where the New Testament teaches that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that all who believe in him shall have eternal life and not perish. This is the heart of the Christian message, that human beings, all human beings, are born in a state of sin, ultimately will go to hell forever, will burn in hell forever, unless they establish a personal relationship with Jesus the Messiah. This is the basic teaching that lies at the core of Christianity, again, of Protestant evangelical Christianity. And therefore, anyone who does not become a born-again Christian, anyone who does not accept Jesus into their life as their personal Lord and Savior, and the belief here is you cannot be born a Christian. You can't be born to parents who are Christians and you're born a Christian. You must, as an adult, consciously accept this upon yourself. You must consciously, at some point in your life, admit that you're a sinner, admit that you're lost, admit that without Jesus, you will go to hell forever, and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And it's for this very reason that fundamentalist evangelical Protestants will attempt to convert the entire world. Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Baha'is, atheists, tribal religions, Catholics, who they believe have not become full born-again Christians, and liberal Protestants. Everyone is grist for the mill. Everyone needs to be saved. So to understand this course, it's important to put yourself within the mind frame to begin to understand from the inside how a born-again evangelical Christian thinks. They very clearly see the world as being divided between those who were saved and those who were lost. And what compels them, what impels them to try to convert people, Jew and non-Jew, is the hope that they can save people from the fires of hell. Christians do not try and convert people because they will themselves get brownie points in heaven. Christians believe that their place in heaven is assured. Once they've become a Christian, they have a guaranteed place in heaven. They do not get a better seat in heaven by converting other people. So you have to realize that what motivates them is essentially an altruistic motive. They care for people. They do not want to see people, innocent people, good people, spending their eternity in hell. And if you could appreciate this, you can appreciate what drives these people to spend so much time and energy spreading their beliefs. Christianity clearly is a very exclusivistic religion. It's a very intolerant religion because Christianity believes at its core that they have the only truth. In the New Testament, Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the essential teaching of Christianity, 
is that the only way to ever have a relationship with God is through Jesus. The only way to go to heaven is through Jesus. The only way to avoid the flames of hell is through Jesus. There are no other ways. And this concept lies at the heart of born-again Christian theology. Now, the question we need to explore at this point is, why the special focus then on Jews? Because I've explained to you why the Christian agenda includes the conversion of every person in the world. But clearly, we're going to see tonight, Christians have a special focus, a special emphasis placed upon converting the Jewish people. We've all in this room, I'm sure, heard of a group called Jews for Jesus. I suspect that no one in North America that's Jewish and breathing has not heard of that group. We'll see in this class that Jews for Jesus is one of hundreds of groups that do the exact same thing. That's just the name of one organization. There are hundreds of organizations that have the exact same agenda as Jews for Jesus. But there are no other ethnic groups that are singled out like the Jewish people are. There are no groups like Muslims for Jesus, Albanians for Jesus, Baha'i for Jesus, Santeria for Jesus, Voodoo's for Jesus. We are the only group that's singled out as a special target by Christians. And that's the next point that we have to understand. Why is it that Christians are so obsessed with converting Jews? The first reason, we'll look at three reasons tonight. The first reason is really based upon an understanding of the Christian Bible. Any Christian who's a born-again Christian essentially has the Bible as their main book. They read very few other books. Born-again Christians are infused with what the New Testament teaches and the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible. So, born-again Christians who spend all of their time and all of their focus on the Bible are reading a book which focuses on Jewish people. In the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible, clearly it's a book which is centered in Israel. All the main characters are Jewish. The stars of the book are all Jewish people. The focus is the Jewish people. It's essentially a book about God's relationship with the Jewish people. And the Christian Bible, to a great extent, carries on that story. In the Christian Bible, Jesus is Jewish. He lives in the land of Israel. His followers are just about all Jews. And Jesus constantly says to his disciples, he constantly says, I have only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus constantly tells his disciples, do not go to the cities of the Gentiles. Do not go to the cities of the Samaritans. Jesus makes it very clear that his only interest while he was alive was in reaching the Jewish people. There's a very famous story in the book of Matthew where a Canaanite woman, a non-Jewish woman, comes to Jesus begging for him to help her because her daughter is sick. Her daughter needs to be cured. And Jesus chases her away. He chases her away.
And she comes back. And he says to her, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came back again, begging for help. Please, help me. And Jesus says to her, it's not proper to take the food of the children and throw it to dogs. That's what he says to her. And she says, yes, but even dogs eat the scraps from under their master's table. And then finally he relents and he cures her daughter. But here's a story where Jesus in his own actions clearly is not interested in dealing with a non-Jew. And his mandate to his disciples over and over and over again is not going to not go to spread the message to non-Jews, to Gentiles, to Samaritans, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So clearly within the New Testament, within the Christian Bible, there's an emphasis, a priority placed upon the Jewish people over and above the rest of the world. Finally, at the very end of his life, Jesus gives what is known as the Great Commission. He finally, at the end of his life, tells his disciples, now go out and make disciples of the entire world. So finally they receive the mandate to try and spread the Christian faith to the rest of the world. And yet, even after this Great Commission, the New Testament teaches through Paul, who became essentially the main disciple of Christianity, Paul teaches in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is to go to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. This is a very often quoted motto in the New Testament, and it's on the literature, on the stationery of many missionary organizations. To the Jew first. To the Jew first. So within the New Testament, there is a priority placed upon reaching the Jews, above and beyond that of reaching the rest of the world. There's a second issue, second reason today why Christians are obsessed with converting Jewish people. One of the things that Christianity believes, and that Christianity has believed since its inception, is that Jesus although he was the Messiah, did not really finish the job. And that Jesus will come again. There'll be what they call a second coming of the Messiah. This has been one of the major hopes of Christianity since the death of Jesus. As a matter of fact, his disciples expected him to come back within their lifetimes. And the fact that he didn't come back immediately was a tremendous problem for Christianity, for early Christians. But since the inception of Christianity, there's been a very, very strong expectation and hope for the second coming of Jesus, for Jesus to come back and really finish the job, really bring about a transformation of the world. One of the things that has happened over Christian history is that there have been, there have been particular times when Christians have felt that now is really the time when it's going to happen. And we are now living in one of those times. Virtually all born-again Christians, virtually all evangelical Christians believe that we are now living in what is called the end times. We are now living at the, essentially the end of history, and the belief is that Jesus' imminent 
second coming is just around the corner. There's a very, very strong belief that Jesus is coming back very, very soon. There are many reasons why Christians feel this way. Part of it has to do with some of the events going on in the world. Some of the political turmoil, the claim that we're experiencing a tremendous amount of natural disasters, which the New Testament speaks about. But one of the primary reasons is that we're now approaching the end of the second millennium. We're approaching the year 2000. And Christians have been obsessed with the concept of the millennium since Christianity started. In an article that not, appeared not too long ago in Psychology Today magazine, there was an article that spoke about what's called millennial fever. The excitement that builds as we reach the end of a millennial millennium. And the article went back about a thousand years and focused on the approach of the year 1000. And it's fascinating how the entire world was so completely captured by the approaching year 1000 and the expectation that Jesus may return in the year 1000. The article documents that in the year 999, on the last day of the year, on New Year's Eve, the entire country of Iceland converted to Christianity. Just in case Jesus came the next day, they should all be able to have a seat on the bus. Right? They shouldn't be left behind. But that's how crazy the world became. There was this fever, this excitement that the second coming was just around the corner. We are now going through the same kind of period. If you ever read Christian books or listen to Christian radio or watch Christian television, this is a constant topic of conversation. If you go to a Christian bookstore, there are entire sections of the bookstore dealing with eschatology, with the study of the end times. When is the second coming going to happen? What's going to happen at the millennium? When is the rapture? What's go- All the questions about what's going to happen at the end is probably one of the hottest topics in the Christian world. There's a tremendous excitement, tremendous anticipation, tremendous expectation that Jesus' second coming is just around the corner. There's one hitch. There's one problem. In the Christian Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 39, Jesus says to the Jewish people, again, those are the only people Jesus spoke to. So Jesus was speaking to the Jewish people at his time and said the following, You will never see me again. You will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many Christians, many Christians understand this passage to mean that Jesus will never return. Jesus will not return until the Jewish people in large numbers come to believe in him. There was a commentary to the New Testament written by someone named David Stern. And in David Stern's commentary to this verse in the book of Matthew, he says the following, The fact that Jesus will not return until Israel receives national salvation is a powerful motivator for evangelizing Jewish people. This becomes a very, very important reason to convert the Jews. Because we are the ones that are holding up the show. We are the ones that are getting in the way of progress. 
If they fail to convert the people in Bosnia or Rwanda, that's not going to stop the return of Jesus. But the failure of the Jewish people to come to believe in Jesus is a very, very serious impediment. So there's a strong motivation that Christians have beyond the simple priority placed in the New Testament upon reaching Jews, a very strong motivation for converting Jews. Third reason. The third reason is possibly the most serious one. And this is a psychological reason. One of the greatest problems that Christianity has faced over the past 2,000 years has been the non-conversion, the non-acceptance of the Jewish people of the message of Christianity. What would have happened if Jesus 2,000 years ago went to Egypt or went to Greece or went to Rome 2,000 years ago and said, I am the Messiah? The reaction in any of those places would have been, he would have been ignored. No one in the world 2,000 years ago knew what the idea of the Messiah was. It was a non-meaningful term. It would be like someone coming into the United States Senate and saying, uh, I'm a goomba. They don't know what it means. What's that? It's an irrelevant term. It means nothing to them. Jesus did not go to Egypt. He did not go to Rome. He did not go to Babylon. He did not go to Greece and claimed to be the Messiah. He made the claim to the Jewish people. The Jewish people 2,000 years ago were the only people in the world who had such a concept. It was a Jewish concept based upon the Jewish Bible. The rest of the world 2,000 years ago didn't have a Bible, didn't read the Bible, didn't even have a knowledge of one God. If you look at the landscape of the world 2,000 years ago, there were Jews, and the rest of the world were pagan barbarians who worshipped sticks and rocks and bugs. That was the world back then. And to a world of pagan barbarians, the claim that someone was the Messiah was a meaningless claim. It wouldn't have meant a thing. Two thousand years ago, who were people who would have something meaningful to say about whether someone was or wasn't the Messiah. 2,000 years ago, whose opinion would matter? Was the opinion of some pagan barbarian living in Babylon or Egypt, was their opinion on whether someone was the Messiah relevant? Of course not. The Jewish people were the quote-unquote experts. Not only did we come up with the idea, it's in our Bible, we were people who were praying regularly for the Messiah to come. It's important to understand this. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus were very, very, very hopeful the Messiah would come. It wasn't a concept that was tossed around only in the academies of the learned people. It was a concept that every Jew felt very strongly about. During Jewish history, it's at times of persecution that Jews really appreciate the idea of the Messiah coming to straighten things out. Today, thank God, in Canada, I can walk around on the street with my kippah and not be afraid of getting my head smashed in with a baseball bat. It happens once in a while. But today, I'm living in a relatively peaceful country, and I pray three times a day and more for the Messiah to come. 
Imagine Jews living in a place where they're constantly tormented, where their lives are constantly in danger. They certainly pray for the Messiah to come. 2,000 years ago, the Jews were under a very brutal Roman occupation. And Jews were constantly praying for the Messiah to come and to change things for the better. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people essentially vote with their feet and say, it would have been wonderful if he was the Messiah, but clearly he wasn't. Who are the people that ultimately became believers in Jesus? Who are the people that ultimately accepted him as the Messiah? The Greek and Roman pagan world. People who really had very little ability to make an intelligent judgment either way. And if you study the history of Christianity, most of these people accepted Christianity because they were forced into it. Constantine, in the year 350, essentially established Christianity as the world religion, as a state religion. People back then didn't take comparative religion courses in college and decide after examining all of the choices which is the true religion. Don't think that's what happened 2,000 years ago. But the Jewish people, the only people in the world that had any possibility of knowing whether someone was or wasn't, realized that Jesus wasn't. And the only people who accepted Jesus are people who really had no basis for forming an intelligent opinion anyway. This has been a very, very troubling reality for Christianity for the past 3,000 years. You can imagine. Christians have been scratching their head for 2,000 years saying, how come the Jewish people didn't accept Jesus? They're the ones that should have known. They're the ones that should have accepted him. So the New Testament gives the following explanation. The New Testament explains why the Jewish people didn't believe in Jesus. The New Testament says that Satan blinded the eyes of the Jewish people and the Jewish people were supernaturally prevented from ever seeing the truth. There's an answer for you. I mean, in a certain sense, it makes a lot of sense because if Jesus was the Messiah, then the Jews should have realized that only something like Satan could get in the way of the Jewish people not seeing it. The New Testament says that to this very day, Jewish people have a veil covering their eyes that prevents them from seeing the truth. But this was a very, very central belief in early Christianity, that the Jewish people were prevented supernaturally by the devil from ever seeing the truth of Jesus. And during the Middle Ages, there was a different theory that started, which is a bit more pernicious. In the Middle Ages, the theory was, listen carefully because this is a very strange theory, the theory was that the Jewish people really knew that Jesus was the Messiah. That in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people actually knew he was the Messiah. But because the Jewish people are so intrinsically evil, because their entire nature is evil to the core, they refuse to believe that which they knew. That was a very, very common theory during the Middle Ages. 
that became part of the theory of demonizing the Jews, of painting the Jews themselves as the devil. Not that we were blinded by the devil, but the Jews themselves are satanic. We are intrinsically evil. There's no other way of explaining how the Jews could not accept the truth of Christianity. Is there a third possibility? We've heard two. The Jews were blinded by the devil. The Jews are evil. Is there a third possibility that might explain why the Jews did not accept Jesus 2,000 years ago? I quote to you from someone named James Christensen, who was the former General Secretary of the American Baptist Church's National Mission Society. He said the following, After all, unconverted Jews make Christians wonder if perhaps Jesus is not the Messiah after all. Maybe the Jews were right. That certainly is a possibility. After all, one of the few things that Christians have realized over the past 2,000 years is that we are not a stupid people. If you go through the litany of things that anti-Semites have said about Jews, the one thing they never accused us, accused us of is being stupid. We hate those Jews because they're stupid. Everything else we were accused of, poisoning their wells, killing their babies, drinking their blood on Passover, every possible thing in the world became good enough reasons for hating the Jews. But certainly we were never accused of being stupid and hated for that. We were always respected for our brilliance and our intelligence. So the possibility that, you know what, the Jews are right. Maybe they were right. Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah is a very, very terrifying possibility for a serious Christian. It's one that very few Christians will articulate. It's one that probably lies deep buried inside. But I would suggest psychologically one that's there. Possibly repressed, possibly a feeling, a sensation that's not really dealt with, but I suspect that deep down inside, many Christians harbor the internal possibility that maybe the Jews are right. And psychologically, that would explain why Christians are so obsessed with trying to convert Jews. There was a famous longshoreman who years ago was a philosopher as well, named Eric Hoffer. Eric Hoffer wrote a book called The True Believer. And in his book, The True Believer, Eric Hoffer says the following. He says, The missionary zeal seems rather an expression of some deep misgiving, some pressing feeling of insufficiency at the center. It is an absolute... It is a search for a final and irrefutable demonstration that our absolute truth is indeed the one and only truth. The proselytizing fanatic strengthens his own faith by converting others. The creed whose legitimacy is most easily challenged is likely to develop the strongest proselytizing impulse. So we can understand psychologically why Christians are so obsessed with trying to convert Jews. Because certainly the Jewish non-belief in Jesus is an incredible attack on his credibility. The fact that the experts of the world did not accept Jesus really attacks at the core the credibility of Christianity. And the acceptance of Christianity 
by people who have no idea about what the Bible is and what the Bible says about the Messiah and have, don't have the faintest idea about what the Messiah is, their acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah is irrelevant. It doesn't bolster his credibility one iota. So we see now three reasons for why Christians are especially obsessed with targeting Jews. Over the course of the past 2,000 years, Christians have employed various means to convert the Jewish people. In the early days, their approach was very non-subtle. It essentially was the offer of death or conversion. That was the approach in the early days. Convert or die. Kiss the sword or kiss the cross. And Jewish people were prepared in the hundreds and in the thousands to go to their deaths rather than get baptized. Everyone sitting in the room here tonight is Jewish, is Jewish because their ancestors chose death over baptism. Anyone in the room here had an ancestor 1,000 years ago who converted to Christianity, you would not be today identifying as a Jew. Jews did not succumb to the efforts to convert them by force. So during the Middle Ages, a new approach was used, and it was the approach that was attempting to be a bit more sophisticated. They felt that they need to persuade the Jews. Jews needed to be educated and persuaded. So during the Middle Ages, it was very popular for Christians to challenge Jewish rabbis to debate. And these were not real sporting events. It wasn't as if it was a fair contest. The rabbis were generally required to debate with one hand tied behind their backs. They often couldn't ask any questions. They often were not allowed to say anything that might be offensive to a Christian's ears. And clearly, they were damned if they lost and damned if they won. If they lost the debate, well, God forbid. And if they won the debate, the Christians were often very sore losers. And usually what happened after the rabbis inevitably won these debates was that at best, only the Talmuds were burnt and at worst, the Jews were either exiled or killed in the city anyway. So this was a constant occurrence during the Middle Ages. Christian priests would insist that we listen to their sermons in our synagogues. Sometimes there wasn't even a debate format. They would simply come and say, the rabbi has off next week, we're going to speak in the shul. Often it was debate format, and we can read today the, the accounts of these debates. We have several of them almost verbatimly preserved. But this strategy of convincing the Jews didn't work as well. In modern times, another technique that was used was to try and bribe Jewish people. It often was very tempting for Jews to escape their misery by joining the dominant group. Of course, you realize in most of Jewish history, Jews did not have easy lives. They were often people that were subjugated to terrible persecution, economic persecution, political subjugation. And it would have been very easy for Jewish people for the past 2,000 years to simply opt out of the misery and convert to another religion, namely Christianity. So cutting to the chase, we have the following situation that we understand so far. Christians are obsessed with converting Jews, terribly obsessed with converting Jews for the four reasons we've seen tonight. And yet, historically, 
their whole program has been an incredible failure. If you just think about it for a few minutes, Christianity swept through the world so quickly. There are 2 billion Christians in the world today out of 5 billion people in the world, and they're growing fast. Europe went like this. And the Jewish people, who you would think would be easy marks, because life would be so much easier if they did convert, the Jewish people have resisted tenaciously. There's a book that I read a few years ago that described some of the programs that were put into practice in the United States during the 1800s. It would shock you to find out how fashionable it was 150 years ago to convert Jews. Can you imagine today if they found out that Bill Clinton was on the board of directors of Jews for Jesus? That would be in the United States today a political death blow. That would not be a great association for him to have. And yet, in the 1800s, it was very popular for the heads of universities, for leading politicians, to be on the boards of directors of societies to convert the Jewish people. It was very high society. And there were tremendous programs in the 1800s to try and convert Jewish people. And many of them bought land in upstate New York, near Woodstock, near Fleischmann's. And many Jews have bungalow colonies there today, ironically. But there was large tracts of land that was bought in upstate New York, and the plan was to convert Jews and to move them onto these farms so they could become self-sufficient. And the book describes how if in ten years they converted two or three Jews, they were doing well. And usually the two or three Jews they converted were a bit out of their minds anyway. So the whole program was so pathetically, it was such a pathetic failure, this has been essentially the history since 2,000 years ago. We're now approaching the year 2000, and things are getting sticky. Christians have begun asking themselves the big questions. And over the past 30 years, there have been conferences and meetings and studies conducted all over the world. They've met in Thailand and Switzerland and the Bermuda, all over Canada, the U.S., all over Europe, major conferences focusing on this question. It's almost amazing to appreciate. Focusing on what have we been doing wrong the past 2,000 years. Clearly, we have not managed to reach the Jewish people. And they've begun tackling this question very seriously. What have we been doing wrong? And then, how can we improve our sales pitch to reach the Jews? How can we start improving our approach to reaching the Jewish people? So I'd like to share with you the results of these commissions. They had two basic conclusions. Conclusion number one is the realization that they have a tremendous handicap when it comes to trying to reach Jewish people. They've recognized, as a result of these studies, that the Jewish people are particularly resistant to Christian missionary overtures because of the history of the Jewish people vis-a-vis Christianity. Not a very difficult conclusion to reach. All you'd have to do is sort of do a focus group with Jews if you were a Christian missionary and say, okay, what do you the Jews associate with the Christian church and Christianity? What are the kind of things when you Jewish people think about Christianity and the church? What do you associate with? And they've realized that for many Jewish people the associations are the Crusades, the Inquisition, pogroms, the Holocaust, getting beat up as a kid, you dirty Jew, you killed my God, 
That has been the experience of Jewish people for the past 2,000 years. We've suffered horribly at the hands of Christians. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that Jewish people that have this association are not going to be flocking into churches. Why should we go there? They hate us. Clearly, the Christians who've converted, the, who've conducted these seminars and who've conducted these studies, these Christians don't hate Jews. And what they will do often is blame the persecution of Jews on the Catholic Church. Right? Again, we're talking tonight about Protestants. So a very convenient thing is to say, well, the people who tortured Jews have always been the, Pro- the Catholics. We're the good guys. Of course, anyone that's familiar with the history of the Protestant Church realizes that they are not, their record is not so clean either. But one simple way of, of dealing with the reality is to blame most of the persecution on the Catholic Church. And again, they can do that because there were no Protestants around at the time of the Inquisition or the Crusades. But since the 1500s and Martin Luther, we suffered plenty under the Protestant Church as well. Hitler's Germany was essentially Protestant, Lutheran. So the other approach is to say, look, even those Protestants who persecuted Jews, they were not real Christians. Hitler's Germany, the Lutherans that made up most of Hitler's Germany, they were nominal Christians. They were not real, spirit-filled, born-again Christians. They were people who might have been brought up as Christians by their families. It might have been their ethnic association. But they clearly were not serious theological Christians. Any person who's a real Christian loves the Jews. The Bible says God will bless those who bless us. He will curse those who curse the Jews. The Jewish people are the apple of God's eye. So clearly, if you're a real Christian, you've got to love the Jewish people. And this has been the response of the Protestant groups that have been conducting these studies. They realize that the Jewish people are resistant to Christianity because we associate Christianity with much of the past 2,000 years who they claim have not really represented Christianity well. They've not been real Christians. Of course, the Jewish people don't realize that. To us, a Christian's a Christian. We don't check their tzitzis, right? We're not worried about seeing how, you know, which church they belong to and what their doctrines are. If they have a cross around their neck and they're killing our kids, that to us is enough. But Christians have certainly come to recognize that the past has been a tremendous impediment in the effort to convert Jewish people. So what's been done about this? Very simple. If the Jewish people reject Christianity because they think Christians hate Jews, again, we're trying to understand the mindset of the born-again Christian. Okay, the born-again Christian, deep down inside, can't imagine why in the world the people here in this room don't accept Christianity. To the born-again Christian, Christianity would be a step up for all of you. They can't imagine why, what's getting in the way. Such a wonderful religion. They are so happy, they're so fulfilled as Christians. There can only be one explanation. You Jewish people must have terrible associations with Christianity. You probably had terrible experiences. You probably really suffered at the hands of people who you thought were Christians. So if the Jewish people associate Christianity with persecution, the simple way of addressing that is by showing the Jewish people lots of love. 
When I was a high school student in New Jersey, my born-again Christian friends would always tell me, Michael, God loves you. And Michael, Jesus loves the Jewish people. And Michael, you've got the smile of Jesus. And Michael, the Lord loves you. And therefore, I love you. But this became almost a, a, a refrain at the mouths of Christians. We love you. And it hasn't been simply a statement that's been verbalized. They've shown this love through their behavior. There are a number of organizations in the world that have come up over the past 20 years that came up simply to demonstrate Christian love to Jewish people. There are many organizations today, Christian organizations, who work tirelessly fighting anti-Semitism, fighting neo-Nazis, supporting the state of Israel, supporting Soviet Jewry, supporting Ethiopian Jewry. We would be shocked if we were to find out how much good work Christians are doing today to help Jewish people. I went to a rally two years ago downtown Toronto at the American Embassy in support of Jonathan Pollard. And it was, a, it was a rally that was organized by Jewish people. The Jewish people there were there in the minority. The Christians were there in the majority at a march demonstrating in support of Jonathan Pollard. I want to read from you a number of letters that were written by someone named Frank Eichler. Frank Eichler founded an organization called Shalom International years ago. And Shalom International is an organization that works very, very hard to support the Jewish people, to fight neo-Nazis, to raise consciousness and raise support for the state of Israel. And in his letters to his Christian supporters, Eichler says the following. Listen very carefully to his words. It's a name that caused Jews to blink and shrink back in fear. It's a name that was used most frequently by those punching Jewish faces, destroying Jewish property, and even killing Jewish people. The name was not Adolf Hitler. The name was Jesus Christ. Those people hating in his name, those Christians who hated in the name of Jesus, never really knew Jesus. They weren't real Christians. But the Jews didn't know that. They just knew that Jesus and pain went together. But not anymore. Frank Eichler says. Every time that we absorb some of the hate aimed at Jewish people, every time we rush to their side when they are lied about, every time that we are the first Gentiles to identify with their fears and pain and loneliness, they see another Jesus, the real one. I want Christians all across America to wake up and stand up for the Jewish people, only then will Jews be impressed and one day want Jesus as their Messiah. There are almost six million Jews living in the United States today. What a harvest field we have right under our noses. The key to Jewish hearts is unconditional love. More Jewish people today are loving Jesus than any time in history. And we're told that this ministry of ours. Shalom International is a big reason for that happening. Joseph Dean is the founder of an organization called Christians for Israel. He gave the following interview with the National Courier back in 1975. I think today he'd be less frank with the reporter. 
said the following. By standing with the Jewish people in love and support, we can provoke them to jealousy, as the Apostle Paul said, so as to win them to Christ. Not by cramming the gospel down their throats, but by showing that our faith produces fruitful works. I have told the Jewish agencies that we are not an evangelical group as such. And that is true. We don't quote the New Testament to Jewish people. We are not actively trying to win Jews over to Christ. But by taking this stand of loving them and supporting them, the Jewish people don't run away from us. And we are able to witness to them indirectly. There are groups today like the International Embassy, the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem, which has a branch here in Canada and all over the world, which again is involved in the same kind of work, being good ambassadors for Jesus by showing love to the Jewish people. And this approach is really meant to disarm the Jewish people, to disarm us and to break down what they feel is one of the main barriers that stand in the way of Jewish people accepting Christianity. Again, you need to appreciate that for many Christians, they cannot imagine that you have any substantive objections to Christianity. They can't imagine that you have any real reasons for rejecting Christianity. It's got to be the fact that you think Christians hate you. So all they need to do is to remove that one roadblock and to let Jewish people think that Christians love them and Jews will come rushing into the churches. Clearly not. And this brings us to the second conclusion that these groups came to. They understood, they understood that 2,000 years ago the Jewish people did not reject Jesus because Jesus was an anti-Semite. They really understood that 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people didn't reject Jesus because he was conducting pogroms in Palestine. That wasn't what what lies behind the Jewish rejection of Jesus. What really lies behind the Jewish rejection of Christianity is the fact that it's not true. It's not Jewish. All the Christian love in the world will not change that. We've rejected Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah, because Christianity isn't Jewish. And they could be nice to us from now until 2,000 years from now. That will not change the facts. So there's the realization, there's the real understanding that what lies at the core, what lies at the real core of the Jewish resistance to conversion is the appreciation of the strength of the Jewish identity. And this is something that's taken the Christian world a long time to appreciate. The understanding of the Jewish person, even the Jewish person that's very remote from their Jewishness, even the Jewish person whose affiliation with the traditional Jewish community is very tenuous, even Jewish people who don't even practice their religion are people who still have a strong sense of being Jewish. We live in a world today where ethnic identities are really becoming appreciated. People are now willing to go to war and kill each other over the fact that they have different ethnic identities. So Christians have finally understood the strength and the resilience of the Jewish neshama, the Jewish soul, the Jewish identity. And they've understood that few Jewish people are willing 
to convert to another religion. We don't want to see ourselves as traitors. I was born a Jew. I'm going to die a Jew. I am not interested. I may not practice my religion, but I am not interested in converting to another religion. And Christians have, it seems like a very simple thing. Christians have finally come to appreciate how strong this is. So how do you get around that? Jews don't want to convert. They don't want to convert. What are you going to do? So this gets to the heart of tonight's presentation. If the problem is that Jewish people think Christianity isn't Jewish, there's a very simple solution to that problem. All we need to do as missionaries is to present Christianity as Jewish. And this attacks, this gets to the central hang-up that Jewish people have had to converting over the past 2,000 years. Christians have come to realize that we're allergic to Christianity. We choke on it. Jewish people are simply allergic to it. It doesn't go down easily. If it's Christian, the Jews are not interested. Jews do not want to see themselves converting to another religion. And that's been the problem. Over the past 2,000 years, the approach has been, look, you're Jewish, we're Christian, our religion is superior to your... It may not be said, but that was the implication. Our religion is superior. Would you please consider converting to our religion? So to the Jewish person, that meant giving up their Jewishness. Right? If I convert to another religion, I'm going to stop being a Jew. And to most Jewish people, that was a difficult pill to swallow. So the approach that's been devised by Christian missionaries over the past 30 years has been to come up with a way where Jews will not choke on the pill. To come up with a Christianity that's easy to swallow. And why will it be easy to swallow? Because it'll taste Jewish. Instead of tasting like a communion wafer, it'll taste like a piece of striped matzah. But essentially, this has been the primary problem that Christians have to deal with. It's a simple problem, but it's a crucial problem. And what they've invented is something that's simple and yet brilliant. And devastatingly effective. Jews do not want to convert to Christianity. Well, then the answer is not to offer conversion to Christianity. We don't want you to convert to another religion. We want you to become a better Jew. It's like in football, an end run. And it's a brilliant maneuver. It's the invention of something called Messianic Judaism. We don't want you to become a Christian. Become a Messianic Jew. And if your hang-up is that you don't want to leave Judaism behind, you don't have to. Because when you accept Jesus, you don't have to give up your Jewishness. As a matter of fact, when you accept Jesus, you'll become not a worse Jew, you'll become a better Jew. You'll become a more fulfilled Jew. You'll become a completed Jew. You will be a Messianic Jew. You'll be a Jew who has everything they had in the past, plus you'll have the Messiah. Now, if you think about it for a second, the terminology is very, very clever because the word messianic essentially is the exact same word as Christian. The word Christ 
is the Greek for Messiah, for Mashiach. Right? Christ was not Jesus' last name, like Jesus Schwartz or Jesus Cohen. Right? What's Jesus Christ? Christ, it should be Jesus, Jesus the Christ, right? Jesus the Messiah. That's what it really is. So when someone is called a Christian, right, it means they're messianic. It means they accept the messianic claims of Jesus. Right? So you don't want to call yourself a Jewish Christian because, again, that has the, the valence of Christianity. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't any Christianity I don't want. So it, the, to develop something called Messianic Judaism was the brilliant strategy that finally developed, and it took quite a while. There were a number of intermediate stages. First, they called it Hebrew Christianity, right? Be a Hebrew Christian. But again, any association with Christian was something that Jews would still choke on. So now the offer is not to become a Christian, it's to become a better Jew, a Messianic Jew. And now the Jewish person can feel that they don't have to give up their Jewishness. They can have their cake and eat it too. They can have Christianity and not feel any of the guilt. And that's been the big roadblock they had, this, <laughs> the problem of good old Jewish guilt. Jewish people can feel very, very guilty. And that's a very powerful emotion. And Jews don't want to feel guilty about their choices. So no matter how tempting Christianity might have been, there was always the gnawing emotion of feeling guilt. I don't want to feel that I'm giving up my religion. I don't want to see myself as turning my back on my people. I don't want to feel like I'm a traitor. So now they've developed a way of selling Christianity as something that's Jewish. And now you can have all of your positive associations with Christianity and feel none of the guilt. And how is this done? How do you present Christianity as something that's Jewish? Essentially, they need a venue. They need a, a place to demonstrate that Christianity is Jewish. You can say it from now till tomorrow. It doesn't make it Jewish because you say it's Jewish. So what they've managed to do is create an ambiance where Jews can actually feel Jewish and yet be practicing Christians. And the venue for this is something called the Messianic Synagogue. Over the past 2,000 years, the arena where Jews were taken to convert them was in the church. So this is something that Christians have come to understand. Jews are allergic to churches that meet on Sunday, that have stained glass windows of Jesus, and have ministers and priests with collars, and have Sunday worship, and organs, and Christmas, and Easter. Those things are so Gentile, it makes Jewish people feel very uncomfortable. Therefore, we don't need to, and we don't want to, expose Jewish people to that kind of Christianity. We want to flavor the Christianity to look and feel and sound much more Jewish. And therefore, the building they will now enter will not be called a church. Because again, Jews do not go to churches. That's what Gentiles go to. Jews go to synagogues or shuls. So that's exactly what we're going to call our building. We're going to call it a synagogue. But it's not a regular synagogue. It's a messianic synagogue because here we worship the Messiah. The person that leads the services is not a minister or a priest named McGillicuddy that wears a collar and has no kippah, 
the person that leaves the services looks like the rabbi that many Jewish people knew when they were kids in shul. It's a Jewish-sounding name, a Moskowitz or a Schwartz, wears a kippah, wears a talus, has a beard, is not called a minister or a reverend or a priest or father. He's called a rabbi. The person that leads the services in this place is called the Messianic Rabbi. So here we have a place that's called a shul, synagogue. It's got a rabbi that leads the services. It does not have Easter or Christmas services. Again, those are not Jewish holidays. It has Shabbat services. It has Passover services, high holiday services, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day, Sukkot. The architecture is very Jewish. There are no crosses. There are no stained glass pictures of Jesus. There are Jewish stars. There are menorahs. There's usually an Aaron Kodesh, a holy ark with a Torah scroll inside. There's always a flag of Israel. But the feeling of the place is very Jewish. It's meant to disarm Jewish people. It's meant to make people feel very comfortable. This is certainly a place where you can feel very much at home. The music is not Gregorian chant. The music is very Israeli style, upbeat, Havanagila kind of music. Again, the kind of Jewish ethnic music that people do not associate with Protestant Christianity. I'm going to share with you a letter that was written to a missionary in New York years ago by one of the people that originated this whole concept of what they call cross-cultural evangelism. It's got a fancy name to it. This is called cross-cultural evangelism. He writes to one of the most active missionaries in New York, a Dr. Phil Goebel. Dear Phil, I am increasingly confident that messianic synagogues are the answer. It must be possible for Jews to become Christians while still remaining Jews and cherishing, cherishing their Jewish ancestry. Swedish Americans treasure their, treasure their Swedish ancestry. Chinese Americans treasure their Chinese ancestry. Hebrew Americans ought to cherish their Hebrew ancestry and remain strongly Jewish. They should proclaim, I am a Jew. I go to synagogue. I invite you to my synagogue. It meets on Friday evening. Those who go there should feel right at home. The singing should be led by a cantor. The men should wear little skull caps. The Torah should be taken out of a cupboard as a big roll and laid on the pulpit. In short, every aspect of synagogue worship should be duplicated. I further think that it would be advisable for non-Jews to be encouraged to worship in congregations which met on Sunday. Let these messianic congregations be 100% Jewish. Let them never serve ham or bacon at their meals. Now, this theory is not something which just came 20, 30 years ago. It has its roots in the Christian Bible. We're going to see that Paul, the first real good salesman of Christianity, understood this concept many, many years ago. In the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says the following. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, to those who follow the Torah, I became as one under the law, one who follows the Torah, although I myself am not someone who is under the law. Why? So I might win those who are under the law. 
to those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, so I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so I might by all means save some of them. So the, the ability for Christians to become chameleons or to become like a computer virus that takes on the identity of the program that is trying to inhabit is one that's an old one. It goes back to the times of the New Testament. But it was never really articulated well until the rise of the modern messianic movement over the past 30 years. One of the things that Christians that use this technique are very sensitive to is the use of language. If you ever read the book 1984, you know that one of the ways people were manipulated was through the invention of a language called Newspeak. And language, anyone that's in the field of communications, anyone that's a communicator, a lawyer, a salesman, a teacher, knows that language is crucial to be able to communicate. Using the wrong language, today we're living in a world of political correctness. If you say the wrong thing, people chop your head off. So now we know that language is very, very important. And Christian missionaries have come to appreciate the role that language plays in the conversion process. They've developed their own form of newspeak to, again, neutralize any apprehensions that Jewish people have about the process of becoming a Christian. Many Christians put out books and articles and source sheets explaining exactly how to use this form of newspeak. I have in my wallet, I usually carry around a very small pocket-sized version called the communications card, but this really is a short form of something that usually takes the form of a book. But they explain how to use the right terminology, what to say, what not to say. Again, if you use the wrong words, you'll scare away the Jewish people. Do not say ever, Jesus Christ. Don't say Jesus Christ. Because to Jewish people, that's like hearing someone scratching their fingernails on a blackboard. It's not the kind of sound that we feel good about. To us, Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of Christianity, which is exactly what I don't want to be, a Christian. So instead, say Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua is a Hebrew form of the word Yehoshua, or Joshua. It's a nice Jewish-sounding name. And HaMashiach is Hebrew for the Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach is essentially Hebrew for Jesus Christ. Yet it sounds much different. To the average Jew, Jesus Christ is the Christian God. Yeshua HaMashiach is a bunch of Hebrew-sounding words. Especially words that sound very ethnically Jewish. It's got the ch in it from Mashiach. It sounds very Jewish. His mother Mary becomes Miriam. The Apostle Paul becomes Rav Shaul, Rabbi Saul. The New Testament becomes the Brit HaChadashah, Hebrew for New Testament. But again, it's a kind of word, it's very interesting, the way it's taught in Christian seminaries is this is cross-cultural communications. We're simply using words that are more meaningful to Jewish people. We're using words that they better understand. Baloney! These are words that Jews don't understand. We understand very well Jesus Christ. 
I understand very well New Testament. To the average American Jew in North America, Yeshua HaMashiach are two foreign words which mean nothing. There's no valence at all to those words. And that's precisely why these words are used. Not because it's a clearer way of communicating, it's a fuzzier way of communicating. It's a way of communicating where the Jewish people don't really understand exactly what's being said. Baptism becomes the mikvah service. Again, no Jew is interested in getting baptized. But many Jews know that their grandparents might have gone to the mikvah. So baptism essentially is what Christians call the Jewish mikvah service. And every single word that's used in communication has a neutral word that has a less Christian ring to it that disarms Jewish people. We use language sensitively. We will not scare away our sales prospect. To understand, by the way, how Christian missionaries formulate their strategy, all you need to do is read any good book on sales and how to close a sale. Essentially what's going on. <clears throat> Everything is made to look Jewish. And yet, underneath the, the, the veneer, underneath the surface of Judaism, is essentially born-again Protestant Christianity. It might look Jewish, but it is not Jewish. For example, these messianic synagogues, these Hebrew Christian houses of worship, will all celebrate Passover and have a Passover Seder. They will all do that. But every single element of the Jewish holiday of Passover is is reinterpreted and understood through Christian eyes. So, for example, at a Jewish Seder, we will have three matzahs underneath the cover. They'll do the same thing. They will have three matzahs at their celebration of Passover. But they explain that the three matzahs represent the Av, the Ruach, and the Ben. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why there are three matzahs. And the middle matzah is broken because the middle matzah is the Ben, the Son, and the Son, Jesus, was killed, or Yeshua was killed. And the middle matzah has little holes in it because Jesus was pierced. And the matzah is wrapped in a white cloth because Jesus was buried in a white shroud. And half of it is put away till the end of the Seder and brought back because Jesus is going to return. But every element of Judaism is reinterpreted in Christian theological terms. Everything from Shabbat to Yom Kippur to the Jewish New Year. So on the outside, externally, what they're doing looks Jewish. But it's understood in the same way that any Baptist, Southern Baptist, would celebrate the Christian holidays. So again, the two methodologies that were developed to make Christianity more palatable to 20th century Jews are one, impressing upon the Jewish people how much Christians really love us and presenting Christianity as something that's Jewish. Making Christianity more palatable for Jews to swallow. How extensive is this movement? How extensive are these efforts to convert Jewish people through the use of Hebrew Christianity or Messianic Judaism? In the 
the early 70s, so talking about 20 years ago, there were approximately a dozen Messianic congregations in North America. That's all there were, about a dozen in the early 70s. Now, just 20 years later, there were over 170 of these congregations in North America. It used to be that they were only in the big cities, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. Now, just about any community with Jews has a Messianic synagogue. With names like Beth Shalom, Kehilat Ariel, Dallas, Congregation Baruch Hashem, congregations that are virtually always listed in the yellow pages under synagogues rather than churches. So when you come into a city and you're looking for the local shul rather than the local church, you might find one of these messianic congregations. So they've grown dramatically over the past 20 years. Dramatically. And because they're now entering into a second generation and they're having messianic kindelach, they're building day schools and yeshivot for their kids. They don't want to send their children to public schools where what's taught is secular humanism and atheism. Of course, the kids will not feel comfortable in a traditional Jewish day school. So now the messianic movement is building for their kids their own day schools. If you go to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for example, Congregation Beth Yeshua, House of Jesus, has the Chalutzim Day School. If you go to Rockville, Maryland, Congregation Beth Messiah, Beth Mashiach, has the Eitz Chaim Day School. And these day schools are proliferating throughout North America. In order to teach in these day schools, and in order to serve as a Messianic rabbi in one of these synagogues, there are now at least three rabbinical schools training messianic rabbis and messianic day school teachers and messianic cantors. These congregations and this movement has an extensive development of curriculum, of music, of records, of tapes, of their own books, of their own art forms. They developed a very, very thriving and fast-growing movement within the Jewish world in North America. Aside from these 170 plus congregations, there are several hundred missionary organizations that are sponsored by Gentile Christian groups. Jews for Jesus is one such organization, Chosen People Ministries, another such organization, Ariel Ministries, another one, Messianic Vision, another one, The Jewish Voice, another one. We're tracking now about 500 organizations dedicated exclusively to targeting Jewish people. And we estimate that these groups have a combined budget in North America alone of about $100 million dedicated each year to reaching Jewish people. And they do this through full-page ads in newspapers, through radio shows, through television shows. There are specialized ministries where some of these groups will specialize in going to senior citizens' homes, to convalescent homes, some, like Jews for Jesus, have special ministries to Jewish deaf people, where they simply go to some of the universities in North America that serve deaf people, and they contact these people on their TTD machines or TTY machines. 
They have special music ministries that go around the world performing Jewish-style songs to attract Jewish people. But these missionary organizations are very effective because they learned one important secret. The vast majority of what groups like Jews for Jesus do, almost all of their programs take place in churches. Why would groups like Jews for Jesus or Chosen People Ministries run most of their programs in churches where they're not going to reach many Jews? So their strategy is brilliant and it's simple. They understand that the typical Jew is not going to respond positively to a professional missionary. The average Jew that sees Jews for Jesus on the street wants to take, him, take his head off. The average Jew for Jesus today will tell you that when they first saw Jews for Jesus on the street, they wanted to kill them. Most Jews find them very offensive. So there are a number of problems with groups like Jews for Jesus. Number one, most Jews are turned off and offended by them. Number two, they have very limited resources. I mean, Jews for Jesus never only has about a $10 million annual budget. Only about 150 full-time missionaries. There are 6 million or 5 million Jews in North America. That's a lot of people for 100, 150 missionaries to reach. So groups like Jews for Jesus did a poll. They did a study a number of years ago where they found that the vast majority of Jewish people came to believe in Jesus, not through the efforts of professional missionaries, but through the contact of a born-again Christian friend, neighbor, or business associate. The vast majority of Jews who became Christians did so through the initial influence of just the person that lives next door, the guy that they share an office space with, the person they carpool with, the person they sit next to in a university class, just a very simple next door Christian. So why does Jews for Jesus spend almost all their time in churches? Very simple. You mentioned before there are over 50 million born-again Christians in North America. Over 50 million born-again Christians. And these are people that have Jewish neighbors, Jewish doctors, Jewish business associates, Jewish friends, Jewish relatives. And yet, the typical Christian is a little bit reluctant to try and convert a Jewish friend or neighbor. The average Christian is a little bit reluctant. First of all, they might feel intimidated. You know, the Jewish people, they're very smart, they know the Bible cold, they're experts in the Old Testament. Right? So the average Christian might feel a little bit intimidated to start sharing their faith with a Jew. Right? They're going to blow me away. They know the Old Testament by heart. So at these seminars, right, they meet in the Christian churches. They're, they're training here 50 million foot soldiers. And they're telling them, you know what? The average Jew, the typical Jew, never even read the Bible. Knows nothing about the Bible. Don't be so intimidated. So although the average Christian, a typical Christian, might feel that it's not politically sensitive to try and convert Jewish people, these missionary groups really encourage them that it's the right thing to do. That if you really love the Jewish people, you need to share your faith with them. But then the Christian is dumbfounded. How do I proceed? What do I say? What if they ask me this? And how do I answer that? And I don't know how to speak to a Jew. I don't understand the Jew. So at these seminars... The missionary organizations train 
the typical Jew, the typical Christian churchgoer, how to talk to a Jew, how to understand a Jew. What are the Jewish people like? What do they believe? How are they different? What kind of things to say to a Jew? What you should avoid saying? How to answer the typical questions? And they prepared manuals and books and tapes and videotapes and seminars. They have an entire cottage industry of training material for born-again Christians, how they can sensitively and effectively reach their Jewish friends and neighbors with the gospel. There's a book written by someone in Baltimore named Barry Rubin called You Bring the Bagels, I'll Bring the Gospel. How to Share the Messiah with Your Jewish Neighbors. And it's a book which goes through step-by-step explaining what the Jewish people are like, what their sensitivities are, how you can more effectively communicate with the Jewish people. So the, the Jews for Jesus organizations, the many, many hundreds of missionary organizations, understand that they are not the best front lines for reaching the Jewish people. They don't know many Jewish people. When you knock on someone's door, that's a stranger. When you pass out literature on the street, these are strangers. You don't have much impact on strangers. And most Jewish people hate them anyway. And there, are only, there aren't that many of them compared to the fact that there are 50 to 70 million born-again Christians who Jewish people are not offended by. We're not offended when our Christian neighbor is a Christian. They're not wearing a Jews for Jesus sweatshirt. They're not offending us. We know them well. They're able to establish friendships and relationships with us. And Jews for Jesus and other organizations train these Christians on, number one, why it's so important to share their faith with Jews, and number two, how to do it effectively. And then, step two. Step two. The Christian might get the Jewish person interested a little bit. They might get their ear. They might open up a door a crack. But then there's always the problem. No matter how interested the Jewish person is, they might have questions that the Christian can't answer. And their one hang-up is, but I'm a Jew. I'm not a Jew. Jews don't believe in this. Then the Gentile could say, you know what? I happen to know a Jewish person who believes in Jesus. I can arrange a meeting. And that's when the Jews for Jesus professional is called in to close the sale. That's how it works. The Jews for Jesus professionals don't waste their time making cold contacts with people. That's not how you do it. The, break, the breaking of the ground is done by the typical average born-again churchgoer. They're the ones that are most suited for it. And they're the ones that can then refer the Jewish friend and neighbor. They can say, oh, you don't think Jews believe in Jesus? You know, we have in this city a whole congregation where Jews pray to Jesus. They can then refer their Jewish friend or neighbor to the local Messianic synagogue. This movement has become so incredibly successful in North America that it's now being exported very aggressively to South America to the major Jewish communities in Argentina and Brazil. It's been very, very aggressively exported to Europe, especially to England and to France. It's now very, very vibrant in South Africa, Johannesburg. There's a very large movement in Australia. And the two places that are most heavily targeted today are Israel and Soviet Jews. Just wrap up with one final story. Clearly, the fact that we are vulnerable to Christian missionaries 
says something about the vibrancy and the viability of our own Jewish communities. Nature abhors a vacuum, and a spiritual vacuum is no different. To a great extent, these people have only become successful because in many cases, we as a Jewish community have really not served our own selves well. We used to be called the children of the book, the people of the book. Today, very few Jewish people know anything about the Bible. I work on college campuses, and I give out to Jewish people Jewish IQ tests, just as a way of letting people understand how much they know about Judaism vis-a-vis how much they know about Christianity. And I ask Jewish students they know who the mother of Jesus was. Every Jewish student knows the mother of Jesus. I ask them if they know who the mother of Moses was. They never heard. No way of knowing. I ask Jewish college students do they know any of the books in the New Testament? Can they name any of the books in the New Testament? Many Jewish students can name a Matthew, a Mark, a Luke, or a John. I ask them can you name any of the books in the Talmud? Not one. Ask Jewish students can you name the Pope of today's Catholic Church? Everybody knows the Pope of the Catholic Church. Can you name any of the chief rabbis of Israel? We don't know any of this. The story is told of a fellow who worked at a railroad crossing. The man had a job. He worked. His job was to work at a crossing where the train came and his job was to signal when he saw a train coming to take out a lantern and signal the cars that were coming. So one night he hears in the distance a train is coming and he notices the headlights of a car in the other direction. So he goes into his booth, he takes out the lantern, he starts waving the lantern back and forth. He sees the car is not slowing down. So he starts waving the lantern back and forth faster. The car is not slowing down, he doesn't know what to do. He's waving it faster and faster, the car comes through the intersection, it's run over by the train, the driver is completely killed within seconds. So the family of this man sue the train company, they sue, they sue this, uh, the owners of the train. There's a big court case, it's millions and millions of dollars. And they put up on the stand as a star witness for the train company, this uh, signalman. So he gets up and he says, well, he remembers that night that he saw the, the car coming in the distance. He saw the headlights and he heard the train. And he says he went into the booth. He took out his lantern. He started waving it back and forth. The car didn't slow down. He started waving the lantern faster. Nothing happened. And unfortunately, the accident happened. So on the basis of this testimony, the train company won the lawsuits. They were acquitted. The president of the company comes up to the man this uh, signal man, he thanks him. He says, you know, we've got to thank you for your testimony. You saved the day for us. And he looked up at the president and he said with tears in his eyes, I don't know what I would have said if they had asked me if the lantern was lit. <laughs> That's the challenge to us as a Jewish community. We, on a, to a great extent, are only victimized by Christian missionaries because we've let down our own people. We've created a Judaism that to a great extent for most people is vapid, is meaningless. And the challenge to us, the challenge by these Christian missionary groups is to create a vibrant Jewish community, a vibrant Judaism where Jews will not have to look elsewhere. So we'll conclude tonight with this story. I hope it uh, disturbed all of you. We say in the world of spiritual medicine, one of the greatest blessings in the world God gave us is the ability to feel pain. Right? If you didn't feel physical pain, you'd never go to the doctor. 
so you'd suffer tremendously. So too, when you feel spiritual pain, it's a good thing, because hopefully it will move us to take action, to respond. Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you. www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish